The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm so honored and delighted to welcome each of you to this afternoon's discussion and session to talk about other options uh, besides the H-1B. Of course, as most of you know, your H-1Bs were either selected in the first lottery selection or they weren't. But if they weren't, don't lose faith and hope because today we're going to talk about other options. And joining me on the panel today are my two esteemed and brilliant colleagues at the Multi Law Firm, Kevin Andrews, who many of you have heard over the years. I keep forgetting how old, how long they've been there, but if I had to guess, I would just say at least a dozen years Kevin has been here. And so Kevin's nodding at me, which means I'm doing it right. Thank you, Kevin. And Ali, who if I had to guess is at least half a dozen years at this point, and she's nodding too, so we're in good, good shape. Um, so let me now jump in and uh, start with what are the different options. And I'm going to invite Kevin because I think many of us, while we think of the J and the F and the E and the L and all of that, we forget a very obvious one, which is, of course, cap-exempt cap employment. So, Kevin, what is cap-exempt employment? Who qualifies? And so for many of our employers and employees who are eligible who are on this conference call, they would really like to understand, gee, is there a way I can get in? to an H-1B without being counted against the quota or the lottery? Sure, definitely, Sheila. Thank you. So, yeah, there, there are H-1B uh, uh, employment options that do not have to go through the lottery process. So if the employment is going to be at an institution of higher education or a nonprofit entity that's related to or affiliated with an institution of higher education, or a nonprofit research organization primarily engaged in research, or a government research organization, um, any of these type of employers are going to qualify for H-1B employment without going through the lottery process. That means filing any time throughout the year, not filing, you know, in, in uh, going through a lottery process in April for an October 1 start date. Um, the employment is... Uh, not doing anything to, uh, with, with the lottery. And, and furthermore, because concurrent employment is permitted, an individual could, in theory, be working at a cap subject, a cap exempt employer, part time or full time, and have the ability to work at a cap exempt employer at the same exact time. So, in order to meet the uh, definition of institution of higher education, the uh, the employer must be a public or non-for-profit institution, have the ability to admit students who have earned secondary education, so basically be accredited, have a license to, uh, uh, by a proper institution to provide education so that, that accreditation and offer academic uh, programs such as bachelor's degrees or at minimum a two-year associate's degree. So uh, that's for the institution of higher education, but as as we said, the employment could be 
at an entity that's related to or affiliated with uh, a, a nonprofit entity. So uh, those conditions would be like if a nonprofit is connected or associated with an institution of higher education through some kind of shared ownership or the nonprofit is operated by the school, uh, by the academic institution, or there's some kind of written agreement, some formal written affiliation agreement between the school and the nonprofit, that, that kind of employment could potentially qualify also. So there's lots of uh, flexibility potentially for potential uh, people, who, people who are able to potentially get employment at one of these types of institutions. Wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. And I guess, Ali, there was a rule that was published in 2016 to expand the definition of H-1B visa cap exempt jobs. And so I think that might be helpful for our listeners today. Sure, Sheila. Yeah. So in 2016, there was a regulation that came out and made a lot of changes and updates to quite a few things related to H-1B. And one of them was the clarification or addition that a position can qualify as cap exempt uh, even if the employer themselves are not cap-exempt based on what Kevin just talked about. Uh, it'll qualify if the majority of the work is going to be done at a qualifying institution, organization, or entity, and if the job duties that are being performed are predominantly to further the essential purpose, mission, objectives, or functions of the qualifying institution, organization, or entity. So. Basically, we see this come up most frequently, frequently, I would say, with IT consulting, right? If the end client receiving the services of the beneficiary is one of these qualifying organizations and the duties are to further their needs, sometimes you can employ someone even if you as the employer are not maybe cap exempt. Um, keep in mind, too, with this, that the burden is on the petitioner to show that there's a nexus between the job duties being performed in the essential purpose, mission, or objective of the institution or entity. Thank you. Thank you, Allie. Uh, okay. So now that we've got that out of the way, I think a lot of people forget or don't think of certain options that are available for citizens or nationals of certain countries. Examples, of course, are Canada, Mexico, Australia. The Canadians enjoy the benefit of the TN, or what we used to call trade NAFTA, a NAFTA agreement, but now, of course, it's called the USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada agreement, um, the TN status. And then we're each going to talk about each of these options because I think there's a lot of wonderful uh, you know, benefits and uh, options available to each individual from these countries. So, for example, um, Oh, and of course, it's unlike the, the birth country and birth citizenship where uh, for like priority dates where your country of birth governs here, it's not the country of birth, it's only citizenship or nationality. So even if you acquired it later and you became a Canadian citizen, uh, later you can take advantage of this, for example, the TN or the E3 for Australians or for the TN uh, option for uh, Canada and Mexico. So the TN, of course, is available to our neighbors both in the north and the south. Uh, as I said, it's the USMCA agreement, formerly NAFTA. It's available for those who are going to be working in any of the professional positions which are allowed under Schedule 2 of the then NAFTA. And the, the list of qualifying professions, of course, is really long. Uh, but some of the more common ones include, for example, accountants and doctors, registered nurses, pharmacists, 
different kinds of scientists, university professors, hotel managers, computer systems analysts, lawyers, engineers, including software engineers. So there you go. You have options for you as employers. Don't forget that. And for a vast majority of these professionals, the applicant must have obtained a college degree in a related field, in the direct field or in a related field, and experience alone or even with a combination is generally not considered good enough or sufficient. And one notable exception, of course, is the position of management consultant, where a person could qualify uh, based on a degree or based on five years of relevant experience. But the problem, of course, is as we all know that management consultant applications are heavily scrutinized um, and ideally it needs to be of a shorter duration, probably temporary, and it's not allowed to be used to fill an existing opening or to replace someone in an existing position or filling a newly created permanent position. So there are some nuances in each of these. Um, Kevin, I'm going to ask you to jump in and go over some of the other issues regarding TNs. Uh, yeah, so procedurally, um, it, it can be a little bit more flexible. For Canadians, uh, they can apply directly at the port of entry, just show up with a package saying, here's the job I'm going to do, here's the letter from the employer, you know, that it, it fits one of those uh, job titles in the NAFTA list that you were talking about um, just a moment ago. Um, so they can show up at the border without without applying for the visa. For, for Mexican nationals, they do have to apply for the visa first at the consulate or embassy, uh, but uh, they're still more flexible than H-1Bs because there's no petition that has to be – you don't have to get a petition approved by USCIS first. You could either, you know, go to apply for the visa in Mexico or just go to the border directly and apply for admission for Canadians. So that, um, you know, with, with uh, our post-pandemic, you know, life, uh, sometimes even that flexibility is not helpful. But with recent reopening of – uh, the the borders, the northern and southern borders, uh, there's that flexibility that exists for TNs that's just not available for most other uh, visa categories. For uh, th There are some limitations in terms of, like, self-employment. Um, you can't be self-employed on a TN. Uh, one possible limit uh, exception would be that if a person is working for a Canadian company to perform work in the U.S., uh, for a U.S. company, so there's an agreement between U.S. company and Canadian company. In that situation, the sponsored TN worker could be an owner, have ownership interest in the Canadian entity, but it's not going to work if there's any ownership interest in the U.S. company. Um, TN duration is, or the, the status is granted in, in three-year increments, and that can be extended indefinitely, unlike H1 that has a six-year limit. Uh, you know, you just have to establish eligibility at every time you reapply. And finally, TN dependents can be admitted in the U.S. as uh, in TD status, so children and spouse. But unfortunately, there's no work authorization option for TD dependent visa holders. Great. Thank you so much, Kevin. So, Ali, let's now jump from TNs to the E1-E2 Treaty Trader Treaty Investor because that's available to a whole bunch of countries, dozens and dozens of countries, but of course certain countries are not allowed, and I think I'm just going to go over and explain those options. Sure, Sheila. So the E1 Treaty Trader and then we have E2 Treaty Investor, 
They're available to foreign nationals whose country of citizenship has a bilateral treaty, so a co-agreement basically, with the United States. They can come to the U.S. to either carry on substantial international trade, mainly between the U.S. and the treaty country, or to develop and direct the operations of a U.S. company. Uh, the ET treaty investor category requires that the individual or the company have a substantial or they have made a substantial investment in the U.S. enterprise, right? So basically you have to invest money into the U.S. in order to qualify for it. Uh, the E1 and E2 categories can also be used if you're coming to the United States to work in a supervisory, executive, or essential skills position uh, for a qualifying employer. These uh, classifications we found really work well for large established companies, but they can be used by entrepreneurs who are looking to build their own startups in the U.S. So when someone from a qualifying country wants to build a startup in the U.S., if they're from one of these, maybe this is a, an option for them that otherwise maybe wouldn't work. Um, the E1 and E2s are not available to all foreign nationals, right? Like we said, there has to be a specific treaty between the two countries. Uh, there are a number of countries on this list. It's a pretty big list. It includes, like, Japan, Australia, most of the European Union, uh, maybe some less obvious countries like Iran, Pakistan, and Taiwan. Most of these countries have treaties that cover both the E1, E2 categories, but it's important to pay attention because maybe it'll only cover E1 or maybe it'll only cover E2. So there's a limited few who only cover one of the two categories. Unfortunately, at this time, there are some big countries that do not have any qualifying treaties. This is including India and also mainland China. Yeah, that's, that's really bizarre. And, and you know, the thing I think that will really surprise people who work with people from Iran is they're considered not eligible for almost most categories and there's all kinds of issues, but it's kind of really surprising that they have the option for this E1-E2 for Iran. So it's really interesting considering all of the political tensions between the United States and Iran uh, that's been going on. Okay, so let's jump next to, Kevin, let me invite you to speak a little bit about the E1 for treaty traders and what, what you know, because we keep hearing words like substantial trade and what do all these terms mean for, for somebody that's interested? Yeah, so like you said, E1 is for traders, uh, people from treaty countries that are coming to the United States to engage, engage in, quote-unquote, substantial trade between the treaty nation and the United States. So th there's no specific definition of what substantial trade means, but there are some guidelines. Like, for example, the amount of trade needs to be sufficient to show that there's a continuous flow of international exchange between the U.S. and the treaty country. So this couldn't be like one single transaction, even if it was like a huge um, uh, monetary amount. It, th there needs to be a continuous flow uh, of transactions. So volume is a bigger focus than monetary value, but monetary value is important. And, you know, the guidelines that the officer, that, that USCIS and the, the consular officers are using is to give greater weight to cases involving more numerous transactions and of a larger value. So uh, the, the greater the transactions, the greater the frequency, the more you can demonstrate this um, substantial trade uh, taking place. So more than half of the total amount of U.S. trade conducted by the business must be between the U.S. and the treaty country. Often 
with these kinds of cases, there's transactions that, you know, it's international, so it can even be with countries that are not treaty countries. And if more than half of the international trade is happening with a non-treaty country, it's just not going to qualify. So, so, you know, it's very country specific. And when there's a lot of uh, international trade going on, you have to follow that line to make sure that the treaty country is getting a sufficient amount of trade to qualify. The person that's applying for the E-1 can either be coming to carry on substantial trade in the U.S., uh, between the U.S. and the trade, treaty country, or maybe they're a key employee on behalf of a company, like an executive or a supervisor or some other kind of employee with essential skills. So that's going to have to be documented, whether you're doing the trade directly, the individual uh, applicant is coming to do the trade directly on behalf of a large company as an executive, a supervisor, or as a specific, an individual employee with essential skills. And um, lastly, the E2 category is reserved for treaty investors. And actually, E2, yeah, uh, I think, um, Sheila, you were going to talk about E2, I think, for treaty investors. Um, that, exactly, that exactly. Investment. Exactly. Thank you, Kevin. Yes. So the E2 category, and again, it's a little bit confusing for if you're not doing but once you start doing it, you get a sense of treaty trader versus a treaty investor. And the E1, as Kevin just explained, is treaty trader, what Kevin and Ali explained. And the E2 is for treaty investors. And for this, you can, one must make a substantial investment in a U.S. business. And again, the term substantial is not defined. So what does the USCIS or the consular officer look at? Most of these decisions, by the way, for the E1-E2s are done at the consulates abroad. But, and you can extend them within the United States, of course. But the consular officer or the USCIS looks at it must, the substantial uh, investment must be in a proportional sense. It's called the doctrine of substantiality and doctrine of proportionality that is substantial in relation to the total cost of either purchasing an established enterprise or creating an, this type of an enterprise um, under consideration. Second, it must be sufficient to ensure that the treaty investor's financial commitment to the successful operation of the enterprise and it's of a magnitude to support the likelihood that the investor, the treaty investor, will successfully develop and direct this enterprise. The person that's applying for the E2 as a treaty investor can either be the actual investor itself coming to develop and direct the operations or similar to what we just described with the E1, it could be an executive or supervisor or essential skills employee of the uh, uh, company or entity that has invested in a U.S. business. Now for both the E1 and E2, the entity sponsoring the worker must be at least 50% owned by nationals of the treaty country and the foreign national applicant applying for the Ivanito must be a citizen of that same treaty country. Ivan and E2 visas are generally issued for up to five years. The foreign national is often admitted in two-year increments at a time. There's actually no maximum number of times that the E-1 or E-2 visa or status can be extended. So unlike the H-1B, which has a six-year cap, unless you've done the green card process, this can go on indefinitely. But unlike the H or the L, the E-1, E-2 are really strict non-immigrant visas. They don't enjoy the benefit of the dual intent like H and L. But so this E-1 and E-2 can never be used 
to apply for an immigrant visa, you need to try to maybe think of other status to change. And the spouse and children of the principal E1 or E2 spouse are admitted as E1 or E2 dependents, and then the dependents don't have to be citizens of the treaty country, and dependent spouses are eligible, as we all know, from the E and the L. They are eligible to apply for the employment authorization document or the EAD cards. So from the E1 and E2, we'll jump to Australian citizens being eligible for E3. And so I think I'm going to maybe jump back to Kevin and then to you, Ali, if that's okay. So Kevin? Yeah, thanks, Sheila. So E3 visas are, are kind of like H1Bs specifically for citizens of Australia. And um, that, that applies to citizens of Australia, not natural-born citizens. So if someone goes through the naturalization process to become an Australian citizen, they'll qualify for this. Um, it, it's a specialty occupation visa, just like H-1B, where it needs to be a job that requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study, so just kind of mirroring those, those requirements to H-1. Uh, no lottery, though. Um, the uh, visa is nearly identical in the, with H-1B, like in the processing. There's an LCA requirement, just like with H-1. Um, if an individual is outside the United States, though, they're not required to file a petition to USCIS, kind of like the TN. They, just, they, they do need to get an LCA certified by Department of Labor, but then the beneficiary can uh, apply to the consulate for the E3 visa with LCA and the petitioner letter. So the process of applying for the E3 in Australia is very similar to applying for a, a TN in Mexico. Um, the applicant does not have uh, if the applicant does not have the bachelor's degree, they can qualify based on a combination of education and experience, which is very similar to the H1. And the uh, each year, the there are 10,500 visa numbers set aside for this category. Uh, this number is never exhausted because Australia does not have the population of like China or Mexico or India. Um, so uh, the the demand for that has never maxed out, uh, at least as of this recording. And the dependents for E3, those are that's E3D status, are eligible for work authorization. They can get EADs. And finally, E3, the the duration of approval would be in two year increments, and it can be renewed indefinitely. So there's no limit um, to to the extensions. Thank you so much, Kevin. So next, we would like to touch upon the next option available if you're not selected and H is no longer an option because the lotteries run out, is the P visa classification for artists, athletes, and entertainers. And you have the P1, the P2, and P3. And as I said earlier, I'm going to invite our dear, brilliant colleague, Ali, to talk about this category. Ali? Absolutely. So this one is pretty limited, but it is a kind of really interesting set of categories. Um, the P1 classification is reserved for either internationally recognized athletes, if they're coming to the U.S. either on their own, like a tennis player maybe, or um, a member of a group or a team, and they're going to perform at a specific athletic performance, so they have a specific game match, whatever it may be. Uh, this should be noted with this one. Uh, while this requires international recognition, they don't necessarily have to be part of a professional league. So they could be an internationally recognized amateur athlete and still qualify for a P1. Um, also, P1s are for entertainers. 
who are coming to the U.S. to provide an integral and essential part of a performance as part of an entertainment group uh, with which they've been affiliated for at least one year and which is recognized internationally as outstanding. Uh, the individual themselves doesn't have to be recognized, but the group does. Then we have P2, which is reserved for artists and entertainers or their essential support personnel who are coming to the U.S. either individually or as a group to perform in a reciprocal exchange program. So think of like J1 only for performers, artists and entertainers. Uh, this visa type is pretty rare because it's, it's really limited criteria, but it is out there. You never know. Um, P3 uh, is also for artists and entertainers, but it's a little bit different. So in order to qualify for this one, it's either an individual or group, and it's culturally unique artists and entertainers. So culturally unique is defined as a style of artistic expression, methodology, or medium which is unique to a particular country, nation, society, class, ethnicity, religion, tribe, or other group of persons. So pretty similar to P2 in that it's artists or entertainers, but it's got to be something that's very culturally unique and specific. P3 activities can be either commercial or non-commercial. And in these filings, the petitioner is often the employer, but it can also be some sort of sponsoring organization while the beneficiary is the employee or entertainer. Even if the performance is it's a group performance, all entertainers within the group need to be listed on the I-129 filing within the United States. So important thing to know. The beneficiaries, again, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, they don't necessarily have to be performers, right? Either your essential support personnel, or you could also be something like a teacher or a coach who was coming to the U.S. to be a part of the group performance or they're coming to impart knowledge in a culturally unique form of artistic expression. Um, there's the companion classification we mentioned is the P3S. That's your essential support personnel. And then the, the purpose of the emission is going to be limited. So it's not broad. It's very limited to the specific competition, event, or performance. Uh, an, event, an event can include an entire season or it could be just one specific day, right? Um, and then a group of related activities can also be considered an event. Thank you, Ali. And you know, we've done them for Bharatanatyam dancers, Kathakali dancers, Kuchipudi, reggae performances at the Murti Law Firm. We have done a lot of different kinds of culturally unique, beautiful music or dance or artistic performance, different kinds, Hindustani classical, Carnatic classical music. So it's one of those fun, fun, fun categories where you truly feel you're helping learn and exchange and get some fabulous, uh, smart, bright people. So people often say, so how long can I come? So with respect to the P1 for individual athletes, believe it or not, can be for five years. P1 for teams or groups, and P2 or P3 for artists or entertainers. Well, it really determines, uh, it, it's determined by the USCIS for whatever is necessary to accomplish the particular purpose, whether it's to complete the competition or the event, uh, and it's generally never to exceed one year. The extension for the P1 individual athletes uh, in five-year increments, it's up to 10 years maximum stay uh, extension for all others are allowed 
in order to complete the same event in one year increments. So one is five years and up to 10 years, and the other one is one year in one year increments, right? And you have a grace period up to 10 days, both before and after the particular show, a little bit like we have with the H1s or other non-immigrants with CDP gives you the 10 days before the start of the end of the start date. And as part of the USCIS petition approval process, often a consultation, which is a statement from the appropriate labor organization, which has expertise in the specific field, stating that they don't have an objection. It's sort of like the no objection certificate that you hear of in J-1 visas from the government, certain governments. This is a no objection from labor unions or labor organizations to the individuals who are engaged, uh, individuals engaged in this process before applying for the P-1, P-2, or P-3 should be, can be approved. It's generally a consultation is required and the consultation should address for the following issues with respect to the P-3 whether the foreign national skills are actually culturally unique, whether the events are cultural in nature, and whether the events are appropriate for the P3 classification. And for P1s, the particular foreign national or the group, the ability and achievements in the field of endeavor to show that the particular foreign national or the group is in fact internationally renowned or recognized and whether that service to be performed is appropriate for that P1 classification. So next, let's jump to the O1 for individuals of extraordinary ability or achievement. Kevin, I'm going to jump to you. Thanks, Sheila. So, yeah, let me start with O1A. Uh, there, there's two subcategories. So O1A is for individuals with extraordinary ability in, science, in the sciences, education, business, or athletics. This does not include, include the arts, motion pictures, or television industry. That's for O1B. Um, for uh, extraordinary ability in the fields of science, education, business, or athletics means a level of expertise that's um, indicative of a person that is one of the small percentage who has risen to the very top of their field. So, um, uh, you know, recognition is pretty key here. The kinds of evidence that we're looking for for a solid O1 case would be um, international recognition. You know, certainly winning a Nobel Prize or something like that is going gonna, is gonna to pass uh, for that, but it doesn't have to be one major award like that. It could be um, some, some more sustained uh, acclaim in the form of things like membership in, a, in associations that require um, outstanding achievement for their members, uh, published material and uh, that, that's been cited, uh, authorship of scholarly articles in the field that have been recognized, certainly having a commanding a high salary or, or confirmation that the person will have a high salary is, is a factor there as well. Um, but all of these things would be factors to demonstrate uh, the, the 01A extraordinary ability. Thank you, Kevin. Oh, my God. If someone says, gee, that sounds awfully lot, uh, close, uh, close to the extraordinary ability B1A category for Nobel Prize winners or people, you know what? A lot of people who apply for O1A, uh, for the EB1A, often apply for the O1A to enter as non-immigrants. It's not mandatory, again, to do one before the other. A lot of people on H1 are still eligible if they qualify to file the EB1A, but certainly the criteria is very similar. But it's always surprising how the USCIS will approve sometimes the O1A, but then deny the EB1A for the same person because they say, hey, 
you're not planning to settle down forever here, so we're, we're going to come up with a stricter criteria. After the O1A, the next one we want to, again, touch upon briefly is the O1B. This is for individuals with an extraordinary ability in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or television industry. And I know many of you in the East Coast and are like, like, why are you wasting our time with this? This is probably for Hollywood or the West Coast or places like that. And it's true. But now a lot of states, including Michigan, Maryland, actually give special uh, um, tax credits. So there are movies being made all over the country, not just in Hollywood, as many of us might imagine. But again, here it means extraordinary ability is in the field of arts means distinction. And distinction itself means a high level of achievement in the field, as evidenced by a degree of skill and recognition substantially above that which is ordinarily encountered to the extent that a person described as prominent is renowned, leading, or well-known in the field of arts. And then to qualify for the O1, in the motion picture or television industry, the person must demonstrate extraordinary achievement. Again, the word is sounding very close to what Kevin just explained, right? So this is evidenced by a degree of skill and recognition significantly about that ordinarily encountered to the extent that the person is recognized as outstanding, notable, or leading in the motion picture or television field. And then O2 individuals are those who accompany the O1 to provide assistance that is considered to be an integral part of the O1 specific event or performance, or they are considered essential to the O1B production. And we should note that O2 is limited to foreign nationals who will accompany the O1 principles in the field of arts and athletics. It is not available to an individual accompanying the O1 individual in the field of science, business, or education. So with that, I'm going to jump to invite Ali to just talk a little bit again about the advisory opinions. Sure. When you're filing an O-1 petition, it has to be accompanied by a written advisory opinion, kind of similar to that consultation Sheila talked about earlier. Uh, this needs to come from a peer group or a labor organization, like, you know, something within the, the specific field specific to the, the individual, um, unless this group organization doesn't exist. Right? If there isn't one, there is one. Um, in that case, the decision is going to be made based on the evidence in the record alone without this opinion. When filing an O-1 extension, the petitioner can actually request a waiver of this requirement if an advisory opinion was provided in the last two years. And they can do this just by including a copy of the previously issued letter within the filing. So basically, your letter is good for two more years. And an O-1 classification request can be based on a single offer or multiple offers of employment, and the petitioner can be the actual employer or they can be a qualified agent. Uh, Timing-wise, you're looking at an initial petition can be valid for up to three years with extensions in one-year increments with unlimited duration. So unlike H-1B, right, you're not stuck with three or increments of three years, only up to six. You get three years, one-year extensions for as long as you can get them. Thank you, Ali. I'll tell you what, I know we, uh, Kevin and I have both the J-1 and we want to touch briefly upon the R-1 religious workers and the J-1 exchange visa category, but I see we're past 35 minutes at this point in recording, and I'm a little concerned because we always try to stay between 30 and 45 minutes to respect your time and how busy it is in the middle of an afternoon uh, in, uh, early in the month. So I'll tell you what, Kevin, 
Why don't you touch upon the Javon Exchange Visitor category a little briefly, maybe in three, four minutes at, at best, and then I'll do one or two minutes with R1 and then try to – oh, and then I think Ali will touch upon it in maybe a minute or two, and I'll just try to do the R1. So maybe two or three minutes for uh, Kevin, two minutes or three minutes, and then two, three minutes for the conclusion. Um, let's move it along. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Sheila. So just briefly, the J1 Exchange Visitor Program, um, just switching gears to a different category here, th this is probably one of the the broader in terms of job uh, qualifiers categories that we've talked about so far in terms of, um, you know, a lot of different occupations could potentially come under the Exchange Visitor Program. So the Exchange Visitor Program is – basically kind of like a F1 analog. It's the purpose of it is to participate in work and study-based exchange visitor programs. It's kind of like a cultural exchange program um, to provide a, you know, exchange between ed educational and cultural exchange between the United States and uh, other countries. The point is to return home after the J1 program to share those experiences gained here. So, so there is that, that return home uh, component. But um, basically, uh, the, the, there's a process for applying for J-1. It requires that the, um, the, the program sponsor, you know, there's a legal entity that's sponsoring the exchange visitor program. They have, there's a process of registering with Department of State and being accepted as a, as a program sponsor. But the type of jobs that it could qualify for potentially are pretty broad, uh, academically, you know, for professors, short-term scholars, students, interns, teachers, uh, au pairs come under uh, the J-1 uh, program, cultural exchange, camp counselors, government visitors, um, uh, even uh, doctors, uh, specialists. So th there's many different categories uh, of people all of different walks of life that could potentially come in on the J-1. Okay, yeah. and uh, uh, Ali, want to jump in and just talk about the internships very briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So we really just wanted to touch primarily on the trainee and the intern programs. Like Kevin mentioned, there are quite a few uh, different ones, but we wanted to touch base on these two. So for the J-1 trainee and intern program, there are a couple various requirements. Um, a U.S. company can host a foreign national trainee if it falls into seven specific fields, and if it has a bona fide training or internship program aimed at providing professional and cultural training. So these fields are information media technology, management, business, commerce, finance. We got science, engineering, architecture, mathematics, uh, social sciences, library science, non-clinical counseling. So it's a little, it's pretty broad. Um, the maximum length of stay for a J-1 trainee is 18 months. And the prospective trainee has to show that he or she has a degree or certificate from abroad and at least one year of experience related to the proposed training. And then once the 18-month 18 18 training program is over, they have to go and reside outside of the U.S. for at least two years if they want to participate in another program. And then the maximum length of stay for a J-1 intern is a little less. It's actually 12 months. And the prospective intern has to show that they are currently enrolled in a degree or certificate program at a foreign post-grad academic institution, or they've graduated from such an institution no more than 12 months 
before the start of the J-1 program. And an intern can actually participate in a new internship program as long as they continue to meet the requirements and if they seek to participate in the training program in the future, they also have a two-year residency requirement outside of the U.S. before they can join another program. Thank you, Ali. And you know, this is uh, for a lot of you who are familiar who have gone to whether it's Disney World or Five Star Hotels and you see a lot of foreign people, a lot of them are on the J-1 trainee or internship programs. There's age limitations, there's time limitations, and they have to go back. So I think we've tried to touch upon all. And the only reason we're touching upon the R1 or the religious category, of course, many of you might be, well, you know, we're not planning to sponsor ministers or people working in the religious profession, but a lot of temples and cathedrals and mosques and, uh, you know, religious institutions do bring people. We do recognize that there's a shortage of not just all employees, but believe it or not, we have a shortage of ministers and qualified people. But also sometimes you can be a religious worker without actually being a priest or a minister. You could, for example, be a teacher. You could be a healer, uh, like a doctor, and still be considered in that, you know, as a religious worker because the focus is to really be a member of the religion for at least two years, preceding the filing of the petition, coming to perform a religious job in either a professional or even a non-professional capacity, and coming to work at least part-time, which means at least 20 hours per week in that particular job. Um, and again, as we said, it's primarily related to traditional religious functions, but it could be a whole bunch of other, um, you know, um, connected fields where a person is giving teaching and medicine and sometimes chefs, cooks, etc., who could be eligible for these categories. Uh, again, I don't think Kevin, Ali, or I intend for you to become super experts in each of these fields or each of these sub-areas. But our goal in going over this is to just give you a sampling and a flavor of the different kinds of options that are available if the H visa. So never ever think, oh my God, now I have nothing. Maybe there's nothing, maybe there's something. You should consult with your lawyer or law firm. Of course, if you don't have one, you're certainly welcome to contact us at the Murthy Law Firm because as you can see, we have an amazing, brilliant, experienced team of professionals who will go over it, look at the uh, different options in a consultation to determine what, if any, option is available, what are the risks, what are the chances of getting the approval, and that way you can bring your valued employees so that your business, your temple, your church, your technology company, your whatever can continue to be successful and vibrant. Uh, and on behalf of myself, Sheila Musi, on behalf of Kevin Andrews, Ali Terry, and our entire Muthi Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Don't lose hope and faith if you did not get selected in the first lottery. Hopefully your candidate will get selected in the second lottery and maybe a third one like last year. And if not, there are a bunch of options that we've just discussed to educate you and to empower you and to enlighten you. With that, have a wonderful day and a wonderful afternoon. And we look forward to continuing to help you at the Muthi Law Firm. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.